Welcome to Thrive HR, a podcast by Thrive Pass. In this show, we sit down with industry leaders to explore the world of HR and everything it has to offer. I'm your host, Andreas Deptola. To create the, you know, a pipeline of interesting products, it's great to speak to the people who are on the cutting edge of developing those, right? So we have this early access to ideas and technology. Welcome to another episode of Thrive HR. Today, Andreas is joined by Salvatore Viscomi, Chief Medical Officer at GoodCell. They discuss GoodCell's mission and the world of biobanking, what it is, the member experience, various cell therapies, and the future of personalized health. Good morning, Salvatore, and welcome to the show. Good morning, Andreas. Thank you for having me. So I assume you're at your home in Boston right now. Is, is, that, is that correct? That's correct. And it's a beautiful day here. So I know you spent. I know you spent a lot of time in Boston over the years, looking at your background or whatnot. Maybe tell us a little bit about your background. You know, starting from an academic perspective, and then also kind of what led to what you're doing today. Sure. So I'll start from university. I was a neuropsychology major at Columbia. My path to Boston was because I pursued my medical specialty here. I did that at Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital. And my specialty, certainly at the time, was imaging and image-guided therapy. So the world of radiology, CAT scan, MRI, ultrasound that we're aware of for screening and diagnosis. And and subsequently, I pursued at the same time a, a faculty position at Harvard for the next 14 years. And while I was there, though, I had a part of my life starting a residency where I was a serial entrepreneur. So, so it sounded like you initially in your career, there was a lot of focus on practicing within the medical field and maybe the neural spirit was there, but it was maybe 80-20, right? Maybe 20% of your effort went to that. And then uh, over the time, has it shifted? Where, where are your priorities now? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So I, you know, as my first startup was as a resident at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Harvard, where we started one of the first teleradiology companies in the world. And we did that in 2003, 2004, where many people didn't believe that people would outsource medicine or outsource imaging. And so we were in the very earliest stages of that. So it was a great learning experience for me and a great timing. It also allowed me to understand that in addition to clinical medicine, I really truly in love the idea, the, uh, the idea of taking a concept that maybe didn't exist and creating a business out of it and all the challenges that go forth from that. And then subsequently, I've done several other startups. So one was a medical device company that you know took about seven years to get through FDA approval. Subsequent to that, I did some consulting work, vetting biotech companies or venture capital firms. And uh, that's how I met GoodSell, for example, who was actually reviewing them for an investor and, and actually becoming very interested in myself not only as an investor, which I became early on, but also as an advisor and then as a, an executive in the company subsequently. So, so before we go into good sell, I, I got to go back to what you said initially about, you know, the imaging, looking at x-rays, and you mentioned there was an outsourcing component. Is, is, was that done in a way that now the images would be reviewed maybe by medical staff in, in different countries to you know, essentially still have a really high quality, but you have some, some labor arbitrage. And then maybe the second part of my question is if you would have to predict for that specific use case industry, are there applications for 
artificial intelligence, right? Are they, what, what's, the, what's the future there? What, what do you see? Sure. You know, at the time, we, we saw that imaging was being relied on more and more. And it wasn't something that wasn't just, you know, at the time, you know, sometimes imaging was, was delayed until the morning. So if someone had a headache or abdominal pain, in the middle of the night, they would wait for the, the result of the interpretation to the morning. And people realized that's not a good idea. People needed real-time results because people made those diagnostic decisions on imaging alone at times. And so it didn't make sense to staff a lot of these smaller hospitals with the radiologist all night long who might be interrupted five or six times. So we created a, a central area where in, uh, images came from many hospitals around the country. And we would have people that were wide awake because that was their shift and be able to provide a interpretation, you know, within, within 15 minutes. And so it really changed the course of clinical care because the ER doctor now can make a decision immediately what to do with that patient, go to surgery, keep them in observation or send them home. Um, and for the patient, they didn't have to wait as well or potentially suffer some consequences from a delayed diagnosis. And so, so it was obvious to us. And it was obvious to us that people, younger generation of physicians, didn't want to be on call and have to work the next day. It wasn't obvious to our mentors and chair people at the, department, at the hospital who never thought this was a possibility. Certainly now, the, now this is being done, I think, teleradiology is happening in every hospital in the world, or most of them, because you can outsource any time of day. You can outsource certain specialties. And uh, yeah, to your point, AI and radiology and imaging is, is a perfect match, right? Because it's data. And so, so AI has a very special position. It doesn't replace the radiologist today, but it does provide another asset to use in terms of making sure something is amiss, helping with diagnoses, as because imaging has gotten more and more complex. So, yeah, I'm sure that the pattern recognition and whatnot, you know, comes in certainly handy there. Absolutely. So let's let's maybe now fast forward, right? You mentioned that you know with GoodSell initially you became an investor, an advisor, right? What intrigued you about the company initially, right? What was exciting for you to to get involved here? Sure. I mean, you know, initially it's, it always starts with people, right? I know you you are similar to to me, right? In terms of you have to connect with the people and understand where they're from and you know what they've done in their career. And the company was co-founded by David Scadden, a co-founder of the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. That was important for me. I was aware of David. We were both at Harvard. The scientific advisory board consisted of, of five you know superstars in the stem cell world and genetics world. And so these are all recognizable names. So for a company of that stage to have that level of talent was really intriguing. So that was you know that was the first part. You know, and then secondly. I looked at what they were doing. You know, biobanking to me was a novel concept. It was, you know, I didn't quite know what it was, right? And the idea that you can store cells today for future use was really intriguing. And then as I did my diligence and I looked at, at there, at the time, there were no FDA approved therapies. Now there are 27. But when you talk to the scientists that were doing the studies, they, there was a lot of excitement. There's a lot of excitement and there's a lot of belief that there were going to be many therapies in the future that were going to work. And so, so then it became, you know, sort of, you know, do you take this out to being there on the cusp of a technology that's about to emerge? And, and then, and so, so that was one. And two is there was some IP around providing a novel genetics test, which is not on the inherited side. But on the acquired side, right? So some of these DNA changes um, we get from our parents, right? And all the cells in our bodies have those. But as we age or, you know, with life experiences and stressors, some of our cells become damaged. 
And that damage can be measured, right? What fraction of our cells contain these damages? Because that impacts inflammation in your body, cardiovascular risk, risk of severe COVID. And so those two elements were really interesting to me. Uh, and then finally, I love the comprehensive the platform. So you have the biobanking of cells, the analysis of DNA, and then you have plasma. This is the circulating fluid in blood that has thousands of biomarkers. And so the idea now is that you can analyze all these three things and potentially use AI to create predictive models of, of, of risk, which no one else was. And, and so, but starting with the biobanking is that no one else is doing biobanking from a peripheral blood draw. You can do it from bone marrow aspiration, which you know is, is an invasive procedure. And then people have done it for cord blood, right? From umbilical cord blood, you have one moment in time to do that and that's at birth. We give the, the opportunity for adults to store their best cells at, at their healthiest state. This is very interesting, specifically how you started. And maybe before we go into the medical side and, and the products here in depth, I wanna I wanna go off what how you started. Right, was really what intrigued you was the people in the organization, the advisory board, right, the caliber there, which absolutely resonates, right, with most things in life. If you surround yourself with with, with great people great things will happen, right? How has the advisory board helped you and the company to maybe sharpen the vision, to open doors, to to essentially be be an asset for, for the company over the years? Sure. And the, the advisory board has grown since I, I've invested and joined. So now we have additional. I mean, they're, they're critical because they come from different areas of specialty. So even of the five that are stem cell scientists, They all focus in different areas. There's cardiovascular disease, neurodegenerative disease, there's cell manufacturing. And so those expertise are important, right? Because they are sounding board for us. We brought in additional people that are on the medical advisory board who are experts in a specific type of genetics. And we have a uh, immunologist, an oncologist. Uh, so they give us a perspective more on the clinical side of what else we should be looking at. And so to create the, you know, a pipeline of interesting products, It's great to speak to the people who are on the cutting edge of developing those, right? So we have this early access to ideas and technology that us as a as a private company can commercialize as as, as we see. So it's a nice it's it's a balance of having the best of academics without the constraints of academics in terms of commercializing, right? So this is when I was in academic medicine for 18 years, the most challenging part, it was their brilliant minds, brilliant ideas, but trying to implement them in practice was very, very challenging. There was a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of committees that made to decide, but whereas now we're really nimble, right? So we, we have a meeting, there's an interesting idea, there is a, that works on it, they show the efficacy, they show the commercialization of it. And it becomes a reality in a in a in a, sh in a shorter amount of time. So, if you talk about reality or getting something you know, on the street, talk to us about what is the current product portfolio of Goodsell, right? What are the things that you have brought to market, and and how can these products now add value to the to the patient? Sure. So, we call them members. Actually, some of these people are very healthy. And, and mm -hmm. we're, we're thinking of this as an insurance policy or identifying something before it becomes a problem, right? So there's a couple of different products. We have a biobanking only product, and that's from a blood draw, a simple blood draw that you would traditionally get at your, at your doctor's office. You can get it at any quest, for example, or you can get it at your home. We can isolate and store the cells that could be potentially therapeutic in the future. There's a technology called iPSC. These are induced pluripotent stem cells, which means that This special cell 
can be modified and manipulated to create any cell type in your body, right? So if you needed a cell that secreted insulin, the manipulation starts with a stem cell, it creates a pancreatic beta cell that secretes insulin, right? That same iPSC cell can be created a nerve cell that, that could be a potential treatment for Parkinson's, for macular degeneration. And so the there's unlimited potential, right? So with this technology. So that's the biobanking, right? So we store and isolate and quantify the number of cells that are stored and tell you about their viability, right? How healthy are these cells? In addition to that, while we have the blood stored, we can also do a genetic analysis about inherited. And we do things that are actionable, medically actionable. So we can tell people about, do you have a risk for breast cancer? And the common one is, you know, BRCA1 and BRCA2. So we do that analysis, right? And and it's something called the a panel from the American College of Medical Genomics and Genetics approved panel. Thirdly, while we while we have your blood, we can extract the plasma, right? This is the circulating fluid in the and, and analyze the various biomarkers. These are important because it, it, they can track disease over time, right? These are not static results. And uh, and next year we'll launch a a new product, a new genetics product. We'll be the first to commercialize it which measures the non-inherited genetic changes in our blood, and which have been associated with cardiovascular disease and abnormal inflammation, which is really critical to one of my passions, which is longevity and age. To understand longevity and aging, you really have to understand the inflammatory changes that happen in your body, and they start with the genetic changes that, that are present in, in people in different amounts, and they also change in, in the, how quickly they accelerate. And so having that ability to, we think is, is a very powerful tool for determining risk for specifically for cardiovascular disease, but also an aging longevity metric that a lot of people talk about longevity and aging, but it's more qualitative. We believe it's important to have a quantitative measure of that and then to be able to inform somebody about how they're doing so they can make those lifestyle changes or potentially medical changes to slow that process down. So... It seems like there's really three main applications, so to speak, or product lines. If if we want to dig into the first one a little bit deeper, the storing of my cells, right? So sure. what I understand is now, okay, I do that now in the hope that the medical field will advance, right? And then in 20, 30 years, there will be additional treatments available or technologies, right, that are not there today. First of all, please correct me if I'm wrong with that assumption. And then what are some tangible yeah. insulin you mentioned, right? Can I, can we expect that at one point I can grow another liver and that get transplanted? Or like, what what are some tangible yeah. things that you could, you know, where, where there is some probability that these things can be achieved in our lifetime? Sure. No, I agree with both of you. Said I, I think that twenty to thirty years. I think it's it's probably less than that, right? Because you know, if you imagine how the field has progressed in the past ten years, and now even more resources are going through, there are even more clinical trials. By twenty thirty, there are going to be three thousand clinical trials. There are currently, I believe, twenty seven FDA cell therapies that are approved. The FDA has announced that they believe that they're going to be ten to fifteen clinical approvals for FDA per year starting in 2025. And so this is already in, in, in place. And so we don't know which of all the clinical trials will be approved, but there will be some. There are already some. Some of them are, a lot of the early ones have been around cancer. A lot of the trials are now focused on Parkinson's disease, uh, macular degeneration, heart disease. There's even a trial on spinal cord injury where there, you can use uh, nerve cells to in the area of injury. And so there's a lot of exciting areas. So the 
you know, I, I think of it as an insurance policy. If quarantine store yourselves today, you know, why not wait until you have the disease? Well, waiting for the disease, there's two problems. One is your cells will have been older, right? So they've aged and have accumulated damage. And two, you already have a disease and may have gotten treatment, and those treatments could potentially damage your cells as well. So the idea is it's an insurance policy. If you should develop a disease in the future where there is an approved therapy for your cells, you would have access to really healthy, high-quality cells. And secondly, you won't have to rely on donor cells. So donor cells can be used for cell therapy, The only which, which work great. The problem is, is that you would have to take immunosuppressant therapy Mm-hmm. which carries the risk mm-hmm. of, right? It protects you from rejection, but increases your risk for infection and other inflammatory problems. And so that's what we're really interested in, in biobanking. It's 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 this sort of knowing that if a therapy should be available in the future, you did everything you could now to make sure you had the best shot at it. And so that's the biobanking alone component. The biobanking plus, tell me about my health today now, is the in- inclusivity of the genetic testing, right? tells you about predis in addition to the storage of cells. So to stay on the just on the banking side for, for a second, it sounds like the, the earlier I do it, the better because my, my cells are healthier and whatnot. Is there though a minimum age, 18 or 21 or what where, you know, I, I can't do it below or, or can anybody really do it? Yeah. So we have we, we start at 16 years old. As the as your cells mature, they, there's epigenetic markers that 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 program them in a certain way. That so we like to collect mature cells, mature B cells and T cells, in addition to all the other cells that we're collecting. There's no upper limit. You can imagine that there's someone that is old but didn't smoke, had a healthy life, was fortunate not to have some random mutations that were problematic, and those cells, despite that person's age, are really healthy. And someone who's perhaps younger may have had chemotherapy, may have had a lot of smoking, and those cells potentially may be more damaged. And so so we don't have an age cutoff, right? We're going to collect the best cells at your best at best age possible. And we'll look at the quality of those cells. And so, you know, in the, the there also is the future technology, though, that even if some cells may have some damage, that you can correct for those. But the idea is you really want to start with the best material to start with, right? Because these cells would then go through a series of, of, of steps to create the final product. And these series of steps multiply these cells, right? So if you're starting off with a cell with a problem, now you're multiplying it, right? So the idea is start with healthy cells, create the cell type you need, implant that healthy cell. But before you do that, you, you will, you'll do analysis to make sure those cells are healthy. You asked a really good question. What else can you do with cells besides the cell therapy? And this is the area of regenerative medicine, right? The idea that you can take us, create an iPSC cell from, right? There's these pluripotent cells that could become any cell type and create an organ from them, right? That's further in the future. But again, just like cell therapies were science fiction, this will become a reality in my opinion. And they may start with organs such as the bladder, which are a bit simpler than a heart or a liver, but but there are people that are working on this, right? And the idea is that you wouldn't have to rely on a donor organ, which is problems with compatibility and availability, right? So so using your own cells to create an organ. And the third application that I don't think we talked enough about is that using your cells to evaluate your a therapy for yourself. And so right now, every time if we're sick or have a disease, 
it's a trial and error, right? You get injected with the drug and see how you do. You may have a side effect or not. Why not use your cells to see how they respond to the therapy before they're introduced into your body? So those are the three That's sort of applications that, that I sort of like about, about the world of biobanking and, and that we have. So to your point, it's, it's more the insurance policy, right? In order to see what, what, what is the future right of the medical field. Now, if, if, if you look at today, right, and, and we're switching to the diagnostic side of things, what, what are typical results that I can expect, right? Maybe, maybe also outline to us on the flip side, are there certain limitations, certain things that you might not show the, 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 the member? Sure. So, you know, on the biobanking side, what a member can expect is that they have a digital platform. It's personalized, it's private, high security, and it will say, you have biobanked this material, this number of cells. Is the number acceptable or not? Do we think it's adequate for future therapy? It almost always is with the amount that we collect. If not, we'll do a repeat collection to make sure that the numbers are adequate. Are the cells viable? Meaning, is the, are the cells been transported in a way that they're in good quality? So we're not just storing cells that are received. We make sure that they meet all the standards that we think will be needed for future therapy. And so that's on the dashboard. If you add on the genetic tests, you will say, we did, we studied these 78 genes, for example. We have found that you have no predispositions to the diseases covered by these, or that you do. And if you do, these are the next steps you should take. And as you know, for inherited genetic predisposition, it's not a yes or no, right? It's you are at increased risk. And, and because we only test actionable genes and variants, it, it says there's a step to be taken. It may be screening for echocardiography, a CAT scan, MRI. It may mean getting a pacemaker, a defibrillator. It may mean being put on a medication earlier in life. It may be, you know, for, for breast cancer, for example, a predisposition to breast cancer may mean you get an MRI instead of regular mammogram. Uh, more frequently, you start at a younger age. You may even get a low dose of tamoxifen to prevent the onset of breast cancer. So these are all decisions you would make with your doctor. But the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics has said that if you identify a problem area, there are actions to take to either prevent that disease from happening, delay the onset, or minimize the symptoms. And so that's why I like this genetic panel. For certain people that have maladies in this panel or have family history of cardiovascular disease or cancer, we have advanced cancer and oncology panels. We have advanced cardiovascular panels. What we don't offer is predispositions to diseases which you can't do anything about, which are more anxiety-provoking, right? So there are diseases that like, like people Parkinson. can test for. Parkinson's, like mm -hmm. Alzheimer's. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I would say specifically Alzheimer's because currently, you know, and it, you know, I believe the future will change with this, is that if there's not an effective therapy, you tell someone they may have a right. small chance of developing Alzheimer's. Have you done more damage than, than good, right? Have you done more harm, which is the first rule, do no harm, is, is that you've now created an anxiety, right? And so, so that's the, that's sort of the dilemma that a lot of people have around genetics, but we definitely have stayed on the side of very actionable, right? And unlike 23andMe, which is, can be some fun information, this is information that's more about your, about your health and wellness. We don't do like ancestry, for example. It's fun to know, but, sure. but we do things about like, hey, do I have a problem that I can take care of? And, uh, should we think about this more as probabilities, right? Where I get a certain probability, a higher probability maybe than average to develop a certain disease. And if that's the case, could you 
you mentioned breast cancer, I think. What are some other, what do you see kind of like among the top three or four outcomes here, so to speak, that can be addressed, that can be where there are preventable treatments, just to make this a little bit more tangible for sure. our audience? Yeah. I mean, so the breast cancer, when we discussed, right, a similar one is colon cancer, right? So there are very, several types of colon cancer that are inherited or are often inherited. In that case, you can imagine you would get a colonoscopy at an earlier age to identify the polyp so they can be removed, or there may be some other, you know, novel therapies that you may be a candidate for, as opposed to waiting till the typical age of screening, which may be 50, and it may be too late at that point, right? So so that's a, another example I like on the cancer side. On the heart disease side, there, there are many genes that you can test for. And if you're going to have a problem with your valves or with your aorta, and so or an abnormal rhythm. So if we find that you may be predisposed to having an abnormal rhythm in your heart, which could lead to a fatality potential, in that case, you would go see a cardiologist and check for arrhythmias. If you were to have that arrhythmia, you may get a pacemaker or defibrillator that can prevent that sudden death, right? And so a lot of the, the diseases covered are on the cardiovascular side, and then the final category is metabolic, right? So if you have familial hypercholesterolemia, that means you are going to have high cholesterol. You can be put on a drug very easily earlier in life to prevent all the problems with high cholesterol, mostly on the cardiovascular side. And so there are, it's not just cancer and it's not just cardiovascular disease, it's also metabolic diseases. Thank you. That is super insightful. Now, obviously, I, as I, as a patient, go through the, the, the process, right? There is a lot of information that, that you collect on the, on the member, right? How do you think about privacy, data storage, right? Who's getting access to that? How, how is that all functioning right now? Sure. So just on the, a great question, on the, on the material that we store, that's owned by the patient. The patient determines mm -hmm. what to do with that material. If they choose to no longer want it stored, they can make that decision. If they choose to pass it on to a loved one, they can make that decision. We don't own that material. We are enablers of the therapy. And uh, similarly, on the data side, the data is presented on the dashboard uh, in a very secure, meaning all the high regulatory standards, not only for the U.S., but for the rest of the world. And that's, you know, one of the, that's one of the times we spent years developing the platform to make sure it's secure. That was the highest priority because you can create a great product, but if you don't have data security and privacy, you, you can really you know, they really kind of destroyed the, what you're trying to build. Sure. So for us, that was a priority. And so we have built a secure platform. Members opt in if they want to share their de-identified information for research purposes. But the assumption is that nothing is shared if they choose to opt in because for, for mankind, humankind, they want to help identify, you know, things on the population level, they can participate, but there's no requirement. So it's really an opt-in, right, process. Right. That's, that's something I want. Okay, maybe a final question for you is, you know, if you look at your services, how are corporations, you say, thinking about this in terms of, you know, providing this as a benefit? Are certain me medical carriers accepting it? Can I use my SA card for FSA card? Like, How do you play within the realm of employee benefits? Sure. 
So you know, we have several different channels. You know, early on, we, we had high success with physicians, physicians themselves doing this for themselves and their families, but also uh, particularly in the concierge doctors where they have a lot of self-pay patients and they sort of very interested in longevity and aging and thinking ahead. So that was one an early channel for us. We found out that in addition to concierge and doctors, that a lot of employers have expressed interest because this is a product that is, right, it's forward thinking, it's cutting edge, but because there's an annual storage component, right? So there's a collection that's immediate, and then the material gets stored year after year after year, right? Because until it's needed. And so first think of this as a, as a tool for retention as well, right? Because certainly on the recruitment side, it's another perk, right? Like fertility treatments is a nice perk. So it's another another sort of tool in their arsenal of things they can offer employees to keep them happy where they're. But certainly the the membership component lends itself well to retention. That's on the biobanking side. The biobanking and genetics works a little bit different because that product together is covered by FSA HSA accounts. And so the genetics components reimbursed, you get the biobanking storage and membership for that first year. And then you can choose to continue on for that. Uh, and we do have a, a bill in Congress for directly reimbursing the biobanking for SHSA accounts. So there are different ways of working with different channels. So there is the one that's a, a direct benefit that the uh, employer would support. And, and then there's another product that is going to fit well into that. Yeah, it will be interesting to see what, what Congress will do with, with that. And I certainly learned a lot today. I think to see how the medical field will develop here over the next couple of decades and, and what, what can already be done today, right? So thank you so much for, for taking the time today and, you know, not only giving us a glimpse into the future, but also what is, what is tangible today, right? And what, what can, you know, the, the members accomplish with some of the di diagnostics. Great. Yeah, it was a pleasure and thank you for your great questions. This podcast is sponsored by ThrivePass, a trusted HR partner for innovative benefits technology. From lifestyle spending accounts to pre-tax to COBRA administration, ThrivePass has you covered. We personalize benefits. You thrive as the employer of choice. More at thrivepass.com.